Well, let's go to our study tonight. We're looking at week four, uh, beginning on page 75. And uh, we'll take a moment, kind of refresh our memory. I know some of you may have uh, completed these studies a week or two ago, and maybe you're kind of foggy on uh, what uh, we're going to be looking at tonight. But let me read, uh, read for you the, header, the headings again uh, for week four. What will it mean to see God? What will it mean for God to dwell among us? How will we worship God? Will we actually rule with Christ? And how will we rule God's kingdom? Um, so I guess uh, day five kind of gives away the answer for day four, uh, doesn't it? But we're looking at this, and I want to remind you as we study and as we discuss tonight that this is a many-sided conversation. And so I'm going to be asking questions, and they're not rhetorical. They're not just uh, for emphasis. I, I want you to answer and, and contribute and, and discuss, and uh, we have time to do that tonight. And we'll do like we've done in, in the uh, last several uh, studies, basically all the studies. We'll go kind of day by day. So now maybe you're making notes. And listen, this is your book. If you paid for it, uh, this is your book. You didn't pay for it. You shame on you. But anyway, this is your book. So mark it up and, and highlight it and, and, and make it yours. And uh, don't be afraid to do that. And I would encourage you to do that. Uh, you learn a lot more. It seems or you can retain a lot more if you use a highlighter and a pen. You make notes, you make um, comments, you maybe ask questions in the margins. Uh, it's your book. Uh, so be sure to, to use it and uh, get us, get all you can out of it. But I want to get started there on page uh, 75, week four, celebrating the joy and industry of the new earth. We talked a lot about the new heaven and the new earth. And I think for all intents and purposes that uh, maybe some of us have we broadened our understanding of what the Bible is teaching when it comes to heaven. The heaven is not just somewhere out there somewhere. But to realize that there's this combination of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And we're actually coming up in our study on Revelation uh, in the days to come. Uh, Revelation 21 and 22, looking at the new Jerusalem and some of these things. So it's interesting how all this kind of ties together. Well, let me just go ahead and get started by asking you a question and think about it before you answer. Because uh, I think I know what a lot of people would say right off the bat, but think about it before you answer. And uh, I will tell you, the answer is in the book. And if you read it, you, you saw the answer. But what is God's greatest gift to us? What is God's greatest gift to us? Now, a lot of you want to say salvation right away, probably. And that is an unspeakable gift. That is an incredible gift. That is a mind blowing gift, a wonderful gift. But is that is that the greatest gift? Okay, our life. All right. Any other thoughts? Huh? That's right. First paragraph. Now, our life is a wonderful gift as well, whether we're talking about our physical life or our spiritual life. But the very last sentence in the opening paragraph says God's greatest gift to us is and always be himself. And, of course, there is a sense where salvation is included in that because Jesus Christ gave us himself. I mean, he literally shed his precious blood and died and was buried and raised again victorious. Now, look at the very first uh, sentence on page 75. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. Agree or disagree? 
agree. You agree? You agree? Several agree. Nobody's going to disagree because everybody's agreeing. Have you ever thought about heaven? Because a lot of the songs about heaven, a lot of the things we've thought about heaven, a lot of people look at heaven as an escape. You ever thought about that? In other words, heaven's going to be an escape from all the toil and the sorrow and all that we deal with. And of course, there is a, an element of truth to that. I remember talking with a lady years ago at a Bible camp. You know, I grew up working and going to Bible camp, working in Bible camps and directing Bible camps and stuff. And I remember one lady in one of the churches over in Tennessee, she was tired. I had kind of written a little song about heaven and she was tired about singing about heaven. And the reason why is because in her church, like all she ever did, they sang about heaven. It was always as an escape. It was always as getting out of here. Um, there's a lot we can say about that. I hope we don't ever grow tired of singing biblical songs about heaven. But I understood her point. Uh, our longing for heaven is all about the Lord himself. We desire to be with him. And what did Jesus say to us and to his people there in the Bible? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my father's house. I feel like Andy Griffith leading Barney in the preamble. <laughs> Y'all remember that episode? Uh, I got lost now. Where do we start? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house there are many mansions. We're not so I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I come again for you. That why? That you may be with me, maybe where I am. And that's a remarkable thing as well. That, that not only do we long to be in heaven, we long to be with God. But Jesus, who is God, longs for us to be with him. That's an incredible thought, beloved. But I put a star around the first whole paragraph. Our longing for heaven is longing for God. Being with God is the heart and soul of heaven. Every other heavenly pleasure will derive from and be secondary to his presence. God's greatest gift to us and uh, is and always will be himself. And so if you're like me, and I'm sure you are, there are loved ones waiting for you in heaven. You look forward to looking to, to see maybe your parents or family or grandparents. I have a father there. I have a, a grandparents there and different ones. And we long to see them again. And it'll be a joy to see them again. Uh, folks that you knew throughout life. But ultimately, who is it that we will most revel in? It's Jesus. It's, it's God himself, is it not? And, and all the other joys derive and find their being, uh, their source in him. Well, page 76, he talked about seeing God. Will we see the faces of both the father and the son? Now, I kind of wrestle with this. Um, it said, God, who is transcendent, became eminent in Jesus Christ. So whenever we see Jesus in heaven, we'll see God because Jesus Christ is a permanent manifestation of God. He could say to Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. Um, but then he mentions Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Revelation 22, 4, when it says they will see his face, it appears to refer to seeing the face of God, the father. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think we're going to see Jesus? Face to face? Yeah, that's pretty much a given. I mean, the disciples saw Jesus, right? I mean, his glorified, resurrected body. Um, so we don't doubt that. What about this idea of seeing God? If we see things, of the, if there are things of the Spirit, we will not be able to see spiritual things. 
God being spirit. Perhaps there's another realm we can't see here, but we might see there. I wrestle with this because we know in the Bible, no man can see God and live. When Moses wanted to see God, you remember what happened when Moses wanted to see God? What happened? Yeah, he put him in the cleft of the rock. You cannot see my face and live. You can see my hinder parts. And he saw that. Uh, when he communed with the Lord up on the mountain, when he came down, remember Moses' face is actually glowing because of the presence of God. Um, so I, I, I wrestle with that. Will we actually see God face to face? Because God is a spirit. Now, Jesus is robed in flesh. That's what you're getting at, Daryl, about spiritual sight. I don't know if we're going to see God face to face. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, because we understand that when you see Jesus, you see God. So I think we're kind of splitting straws. We don't know about. But the question was, imagine the moment when you see Jesus face to face. How do you expect to react? That was your question on page 76. Bow down, fall down on your knees in awe, humbled. That's what I wrote. Totally overwhelmed. Don't we see that in Revelation with John? Now, John was not yet translated to his glorified body. But when he saw the Lord, he was he fell his feet as dead. So this whole idea about, you know, we're going to see Jesus and go up and you know, give him a high five and all this. I, I don't think so. Um, Well, we know the Holy Spirit is God. He's eternal. uh, So he will be in heaven. Um, What exactly his ministry will be, uh, it will be probably slightly different. There won't be anybody getting converted. Uh, But, you know, it's the ministry of elimination. Uh, That's another study we need to do sometimes on the Holy Spirit. I think you even mentioned that, didn't you, Daryl? And I've got that one on the list, too, to study the Holy Spirit. One of the most misunderstood doctrines in the church is the Holy Spirit. It's not an it, it's a he, it's God. Um, but I think his, his ministry is going to be different. Um, any other thoughts when you see Jesus face to face? I think about that Fanny Crosby hymn. Now, what do you know about Fanny Crosby? She was blind. She was blind. But she wrote about seeing Jesus face to face. Imagine a blind person who's never seen anybody. If they're a believer, when they go to heaven, the first sight or one of the first sights they see is Jesus face to face. And I shall see him face to face. What an amazing thing. Would your reaction to seeing God the Father's face be any different than seeing Jesus? Yes, no, or I'm not sure and why. Again, I told you I'm on the fence about that, but what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. And when you see the Son, you see the Father. Because then you could, when he didn't ask the question, well, you see the Holy Spirit. Well, that's scripture that says uh, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. Interceding for us. Mm-hmm. That's, all, that's kind of complicated for me. Mm-hmm. Well, well, things be different. Maybe we won't die if we see God in heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, we know we won't be in sin anymore. So I'm not, I'm, I understand what he's saying with the scriptures. It's just I'm having a hard time wrapping my arms around it. If God wants us to see him, then he'll make it possible. 
because in all reality, he makes it possible for us to see Jesus in his glory. Because he's so glorious too, he could fall down dead. Um, well, let's move on. Talking about giving a gift, seeing God, our primary joy. Uh, it says at the bottom there, that paragraph, page 76, In heaven, the barriers between redeemed human beings and God will forever be gone. The barriers are forever gone. He talks about uh, giving gifts and about the fact that God uh, has given his gifts to us. And he mentions there um, Psalm 7325, uh, Asaph's statement. Uh, who'll read that in the margin on page 77? Who'll read Psalm 7325? It's right there in the margin. All right. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? Thank you. He says it seems like an overstatement. Asaph is saying that there's nothing on earth that he desires but God. What do you think Asaph meant when he said, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? What is he getting at? Now, wait a minute. Let's stop now. That's in the Bible. God's word is true from cover to cover. So when Asaph said that, that's the inspired word of God. So what does he mean? Okay, God supplies all his needs. That's part of it, sure. It's complete. The end of the complete. Yet ultimately, you are the one I desire. Not things, not stuff, not belongings, not possessions. And furthermore, you are the source of everything else. We talked about the doxology on Sunday. We sing what? Praise God from whom... All blessings flow. So anything good, anything we have, any blessing we have um, comes from God. He he goes on to say it. Look, uh, there at the first full paragraph on page 77. Asaph's statement in Psalm 73, 25 may seem an overstatement. There's nothing on earth this man desires but God. Because certainly Asaph wanted a steak sometimes. He wanted uh, A1 sauce to go on his steak. He wanted a baked potato. He wanted it loaded with... I don't know if they had steak, baked potato, with loaded baked potatoes back then. Uh, he wanted companionship. He wanted sleep. Uh, he wanted all those things. But he's affirming that the central desires of our heart are for God. Yes, we desire many of the things, but in desiring them, it's really God we desire. Augustine, or Augustine, depending know how refined you are, called God the end of our desires. He prayed, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. In other words, everything that man thinks he's desiring, ultimately he's desiring God. Because God made us to worship. That's why no matter where you go in the world, to the deepest, darkest jungles, you'll find that they're worshiping something or someone. Because God designed us for worship. Yeah. God's presence is what makes it heaven. With you, you remove God, then then what do you have? Think about the Garden of Eden. What was it that made the Garden of Eden really special? Was it the fact that there was no thorns, no thistles? Uh, you know that you weren't getting bitten by. You have to be, be afraid of the lion. You could eat. Was that really the thing that made it the most special? God was there. He came in the cool of the day and walked with Adam and Eve. And his very presence among them is what the difference was. And so we need to get like Asaph and realize that 
really what we desire, the one we desire is God. Now, what are some of the things that men and women and young people and humans try to get thinking they desire instead of God? What are some of the things they try to get satisfaction and right, money, material things, drugs, uh, illicit sex, um, power, prominence, some people, uh, lots of degrees, you know, titles, all those things. And yet uh, riches, fame, that's a big one now. I read an article, or it's been a while back, but you know, one of the things that young people desire the most now is fame. They want to be famous. Sad to say, most of them turn out infamous. You know, it's the difference between famous and infamous. Um, but the point is, those things leave them high and dry. So why do you have millionaires and movie stars, all these, you know, they're strung out on drugs, they're committing suicide, they're doing all these things, they're committing crimes. The NFL... You know, all these guys that make millions of dollars and they, they can't even control themselves much. You know, they're, they're beating people and hurting and going to jail and killing and all this. And they think they've arrived. What is it that's missing in their life? God. They're missing the ultimate need. The ultimate rest is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God delights to give himself to us. And so it says there in italics in, in, italics, in the middle of page 77. Our eyes should be on the giver, not the gift. We must focus on God, not on heaven. This approach sounds spiritual, but erroneously divorces our experience of God from life. Relationships in the world, all of which God graciously gives us. He's bringing about the material realm and other people are, 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 are not God's competitors. They're instruments that communicate his love and character. And so a lot of us maybe, and I know I've been guilty of saying, you know, well, we shouldn't never focus on the gifts, always focus on the giver. Yes, but don't forget the gifts the giver gives you. God has given us all these things to richly to enjoy. When you give a gift, does, does the recipient's joy make you jealous, upset you, or bring you joy? Yes. If the first two... Are your choices, then just don't give the gift. That's called an obligatory gift, right? You know what an obligatory gift is? Well, they're going to give us something or they sent us this or we have to do this. It's a begrudging gift. And so a begrudging gift means, well, I'm going to give you this gift card to the steakhouse, but I kind of wish I would keep it for myself. I wish somebody would give me a gift card to the steakhouse or, you know, you're upset about it. Maybe they didn't thank you enough. No, when you truly give a gift from a heart of love, you get joy when you give the gift. Uh, it, it's fun to watch them to enjoy the gift. And God is the same way. Now, word, how did we stay so long? Y'all need to quit talking. We need to move on. <clears throat> uh, let's move on. <coughs> For those struggling, page 78, for those who struggle, the very bottom, for those who struggle under the persistent cloud of guilt, how might understanding God's joyful nature help them love him and enjoy his gracious gifts? Yeah, the Bible says give us all things richly to enjoy. That means things that are proper. So that means I can go through the ball game. 
to the glory of God. I can eat the steak, the baked potato we talked about a moment ago, to the glory of God. Uh, you can go to the beach. You can go on vacation. You can go, uh, go to the garden. You can do all these things to the glory of God because he's the one that gives us all things richly to enjoy. Do some people struggle, though, because they have in their mind this idea, well, this is spiritual and this is secular? Yeah, some people compartmentalize their lives. And so they say, well, going to church, now that's really pleasing to God. And that's really spiritual. But going to my grandson's ball game, well, you know, the Lord understands. Is that the heart of God? No. Unless you're skipping church. Anyway, that's a different thing. Sorry, the pastor in me came out for a moment. But the idea is, he's given us all these things to richly enjoy. It says at the top of page 79, God is a lavish giver. God is a lavish giver. Who read Romans 8.32? Look at how lavish his gift is. Romans 8.32 on the, in the margin, page 79. Thank you. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Thank you. What do you have that God didn't give you? I guess we could be super spiritual and say, well, our, our, our sin, right? We chose that. But besides that, what do you have that God didn't give you? Nothing. God gave us everything. Well, we need to hasten on a day two. What will it mean for God to dwell among us? The joy of a God-centered heaven. What does that phrase, God, the joy of a God-centered heaven, mean to you? When you hear that phrase, God-centered heaven. That's what it says. Heaven is centered around God. Centered around God. Okay. Everything there will remind you of God. Okay. All our activities will be to worship and glorify God. Yeah. Good. I believe in God-centered worship and God-centered church life. We live in a day where it's become man-centered in many places. You know the difference between man-centered worship and man-centered church and God-centered worship and God-centered church, um, the difference is the focus. Uh, God-centered means that we're here to do what? Glorify God, worship God, focus on God, magnify God, sing to God, pray to God, uh, encourage others in God. It's, it's focused upon Him. What does a man-centered approach to church and worship look like? Well, I should go back. God-centered worship says, what can I give? What does man-centered worship say? What can I get? And we're living in a world where that's become the idea. And a lot of churches are being built upon that philosophy, and it's a faulty philosophy. Uh, now, it's popular because we're all, we're all selfish. Did I say all of us? Well, all of us are selfish in one way or another, aren't we? If you don't believe me, I'll go sit in some of these guys' recliners, see what they think. Take the remote control. Right? Ladies, I'll come mess up your kitchen. 
I'll come rearrange the pots and the pans. And I'll come garden a little bit and mess up your flowers. We're all, we're all kind of, right? But that's not the way we worship. That's not what church is about. It's all about God. It's about lifting him up and magnifying him. And um, it's very interesting. I was, I'm blown away every time I hear this truth at the bottom of page 82. There's a question there. Will God serve us? Bottom page 82. Will God serve us? Yes or no? Will God serve us? Got one yes? Everybody's hesitating because that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? He's already served us. Yeah. But will he serve us? Yeah. Well, look at Luke 12, 37. Jesus said, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Jesus said the master will do something culturally unthinkable, become a servant to his servants because he loves them and also out of appreciation for their loyalty and service to him. The king becomes a servant, making a servant's king. Notice that he won't merely command his other servants to serve them. He will do it himself. We'll, we will be in heaven only because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We must assent to Christ's service for us. But even in heaven, it appears, Jesus will sometimes serve us. So don't get mistaken. It's not all the time. This idea is that the master is going to serve us. There's a song that we sing or has been sung. It's an old gospel song. It talks about who gird himself and serve. I can't think of the off the top of my head which one it is. Is it brethren we had met to worship? I don't remember, but there's a verse that talks about that. And I never caught it until someone brought the truth of Luke 12, 37 out to us. But here's the question. In what ways is Jesus already fulfilling this promise to serve us every day? Plan to discuss this in your group. So here we are. Let's discuss it. In what ways is Jesus already fulfilling this promise to serve us every day? Meets our needs, blessings. Okay. Mr. William, you, you were hitting all around it a moment ago when you said something about where Jesus is. What's he doing at the right hand? He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. Isn't that an awesome thought? Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus is praying for us. It says the Holy Spirit is praying for us. Jesus at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit makes intercession with groanings which cannot be uttered. So we have Jesus praying for us. We have the Holy Spirit praying for us. Hopefully we're praying for us. Our brothers and sisters are praying for us. We're praying for each other. But you're right. In so many ways, he serves us every day. God blesses us every day. So why do we have this idea that God is a great cosmic killjoy who's sitting up there with a big club waiting for us to chuckle or laugh at something and then beat us down? Because some people believe that. Why? Because they don't know their Bible. They don't know God the way they ought to. And we don't know our Bibles and don't know God if we think that way. What has God, page 84, what has God shown you today that makes you want to serve him here and anticipate being with him forever? Another day. Another day. 
Wife, yeah. We could say, I guess, we not only love him because he first loved us, we serve him because he first served us, didn't he? He gave his life a ransom for many. He laid down his life. You know, service for the Lord should be a joy. It should be a joy. Um, I think it, sometimes it becomes everything but joy. Uh, we're in the midst of nominating committee right now. How many of you have served on nominating committee? And you live to tell about it. <laughs> and I told the nominating committee this year again, don't talk people into, into, into jobs. You know, thank them for their service. Make the opportunity there. But don't talk them into it. We don't want serving the Lord to be begrudging. We don't want it to be a burden. We don't want to be something you don't look forward to. I think one of the issues we deal with at times is people serving outside their spiritual gifting. You know, I've seen that with my own eyes. You get somebody in the wrong position. They're not spiritually gifted for it. It's tough, but you get them in the right spot, the sweet spot. It's amazing how they flourish and grow. But all of our service to the Lord, not just at church, but we're supposed to be serving the Lord every day, aren't we? And in everything we do. Uh, it, it should permeate our lives. And we serve him because he serves us. We love him because he loves us. Day three, are we going to get through this or not, y'all? How will we worship God? <laughs> That's a good question, isn't it? Um, will we always be engaged in worship in heaven? Yes or no? Timidly, yes. I mean, we're again. Will we always be engaged in worship? Yes, I think so. Especially when we are here on earth, we get sidetracked. I think everything we do will be worship. Okay, you're right. I'm trying to trick you. Look at the middle of page 85. See where it says all-encompassing worship. Look at the second paragraph. Here's that question I just asked you. Will we always be engaged in worship? Randy wrote yes and no. If we have a narrow view of worship, the answer is no. If we have a broad view of worship, the answer is yes. Drop down to the last paragraph. Worship involves more than singing and prayer. I often worship God while reading a book, riding a bike, taking a walk. One of my favorite things to do is to pray and walk. I'm worshiping him now as I write. Yet too often I'm distracted and fail to acknowledge God along the way. In heaven, God will always be first in my thinking. That's why that verse that I often bring to your attention, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, what's the rest of it? Or whatsoever, whatever you do, do all to the glory. So everything's supposed to be an act of worship. So if you're baking a pie, it should be an act of worship. If you're cleaning the house, if you're changing diapers, if you're doing your taxes, um, if you're preparing for Sunday school lesson, if you're washing your hair, uh, if you're whatever, you're supposed to do everything to the glory of God. God's to be first in our thoughts. How can you wash your hair to the glory of God? Thank you for hot water. Thank you for hot water. Thank you for hair. <laughs> yes, hot water goes a long way. Oh. Why worship can't be boring. Some subjects, I'm on page 86, some subjects become less interesting over time. Others become more fascinating. Nothing is more fascinating than God. The deeper we probe into his being, the more we want to know. 
Do people consider worship boring? Some people do. Should worship be boring? Why does it become boring? Does it come from the heart? It's not God-centered. That's a good one, Daryl, because I mean, if it's all about what I can get, then if I don't like a particular song or I don't like a particular passage of scripture or I don't like a particular whatever, then I get soured on it. Yeah, good. Repetitive. Repetitive. Yeah, you do the same thing. It loses its meaning. Talked about that about the doxology. And by the way, I have nothing against the doxology. It's a wonderful thing. I'm just having an issue with us getting monotonously singing it with no meaning. That's my concern. Just like the Lord's Prayer. A while ago, you prayed the Lord's Prayer. I don't think that was monotonous to you because we haven't done that in a while. And so it had meaning to it and you were praying it to the Lord. If you do that every time we meet, just like celebrating the Lord's Supper. Some churches celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Bible does not stipulate how often we have to serve, serve the Lord's Supper. It, nowhere does it say it's every fifth Sunday. Nowhere in the Bible is it every fifth Sunday. We've chosen to do it that. But it, the Bible says what? As often as you... Uh, eat this bread and drink this cup. You do it in remembrance of me. We had it offered at a funeral the other day. had offered a funeral. I bet you that was uh, kind of made you really set up and take notice what you were doing. Uh, we've done it at various times. We, did it the, uh, East, we don't do it every Easter sunrise service. We've done an Easter sunrise service. The first time probably had meaning to you. The next year you thought, I wonder if I have it, uh, it again. So we didn't do it the third time probably. Uh, which, don't y'all like that, by the way? Don't you love that styrofoam that I feed you on uh, Easter sunrise service? <laughs> that is definitely unleavened. That's plastic is what that is. <laughs> anyway, uh, Christ and his bride. Uh, he mentions in here Revelation, and we were just in this, Revelation chapter 19, the wedding of the Lamb. Um, that's where you also have the wedding supper of the Lamb. But the bride, who's the bride of Christ? The church. It says there in Revelation 19, 7, 8, And the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And it says that that's all about the righteous acts of the saints. Why do you suppose the fine linen that the bride wears at the wedding of the Lamb is comprised of our acts? That's the question on page 87. Why do you suppose the fine linen is comprised of our righteous acts? Now stop for a moment, by the way, before you answer that. Are the righteous acts for our salvation? No. The Bible says all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. So we've already received Christ's righteousness. So these are acts that come out of our righteousness in Christ. All right, so faithfulness. We are clothed in his righteousness. But here it says that this... Fine linen garment, our wedding gown is comprised of our righteous acts. Why do you think it's comprised of our acts? And I know that's hard to get your arms around. I struggle with this too. Beyond our salvation, we are judged on the strength of our word. Okay, the seat of Christ, we're judged for rewards. Okay. Very attractive, to Very attractive to the groom. And what would please yeah. more than yeah. our yes. good deeds. Yes. I, I wrote, and I may be wrong, I wrote that they, they are our gift to Jesus. They're our gift to the groom. It just as let's say that 
you are really aspiring bride. By the way, anybody in here, you've sewed your own wedding gown. Okay, we have one. What went into that? Was it a drudgery and a chore to sew your own wedding gown? What was it? It was a joy. It's a gift God gave me. Yeah. And you didn't say, oh, got to work on the wedding gown again. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Look at page 88. In what ways are you sewing your wedding garment? In other words, what righteous acts are you doing? Well, that's too personal. Drop down to the next one. If the wedding of the Lamb were today, how would you feel about your preparedness? Uh-oh, I haven't even started on my gown. I was supposed to be sewing a wedding garment? <laughs> my gown isn't exactly fit for a royal wedding. I've given my best to making this gown. I can't wait for the bridegroom to see it. Do you want to know what I wrote? I once again drew my own box. I'm just a rebel. Nonconformist. I put myself in between, you know. I, I, can I always say I've given my best to make this gown? Um, don't we all fall short? Don't we all fail? Uh, even our best days, you know, we're men at best and women at best. Um, but our heart and motive should be there to honor and glorify the Lord. Let's talk about ruling with Christ real quick. In Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 that you uh, read there in the margin, um, you were asked when the first portion of the prophecy was fulfilled. It talks about um, he came gentle riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Um, was that fulfilled at the incarnation, that is when Jesus was robed in flesh? Was it fulfilled on the triumphal entry, which we celebrate when? Palm Sunday. Or was it fulfilled at the resurrection? It's not a trick question. When did he come? Yeah, the triumphal entry. He came riding uh, on the donkey. When uh, was or will the second part be fulfilled? And listen to the second part. It says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will be extended from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Has that already taken place? No. When will that take place? At a second coming. Yeah. So, and I've been studying this in preparation, uh, you know, in Revelation. We're, we're looking forward to the millennial kingdom and so forth. Um, but does the Bible say, because I know we're running short on time, are we going to rule with Christ? What does the Bible say about that? Well, look on page 691 at the top. First full paragraph. Paul addressed the subject of Christians ruling as, as it were theology 101. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know who will judge angels? 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3. The form of the verb in this question implies we won't simply judge them a single time, but continually rule them. In other words, we find that we will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, do we understand all about that? No, I don't. Look at Luke 14, 11. I'm on page 92. 
What does Luke 14 11 tell you about leadership positions on the new earth? Did y'all look up Luke? Let me read that for you. Luke 14 11. Is it on page 91? For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The question is, what does that tell you about leadership positions on the new earth? We're going to be surprised, aren't we? We think from a human standpoint, oh, well, certainly so-and-so will have a big throne, and, and she'll have a big throne. Well, not necessarily. The poor widow gave more than all those that were rich. Well, it talks about the angels. It talks about the um, judging and ruling the, the earth. We've got to remember that um, in the new heaven, new earth. Well, you have the millennial kingdom first. And on the millennial kingdom, you have people that are still uh, getting married, having children, uh, growing. Of course, we haven't studied this yet in Revelation, but. Uh, so there will be those that will be ruled and governed. And then the new heaven, new earth, we've learned it. We're not just going to be around strumming harps on clouds. There'll be activities and things going on. Uh, so when we think about it in royal positions, inheritance, um, in the eternity, there won't be any sin. So I don't think we'll be ruling in the sense of, you know, squashing out unrighteousness. But you realize at the beginning of the millennial kingdom that Christ rules with a rod of iron and we rule with him. And sin is not fully done away with in the millennial kingdom, but it's restrained because he rules with a rod of iron. So I don't know exactly how that all works, Brother Dave. I just know the Bible says we're going to rule with him. Um, He will. He will. He'll be bound for a thousand years. The millennial reign of Christ, the end of a thousand years, he'll be loose for a short time. And I don't want to steal on my thunder when I eventually preach this, but he'll go out and deceive the nations, and they'll bring back rebellion one last time. And there's a lot in that. And I don't I say I don't want to get in that too soon, but that's amazing to me that after living under the rule of Christ for a thousand years, that man's depraved heart, they would still rebel, uh, to say the least. Can I go to day five so I can at least say we covered them all? How we rule God's kingdom. That comes up what you were just asking, Brother Dave. You were asked to read Romans 12, 2 and write in the phrase, as it is now under the curse after the word world. Let's read that together if you, get, if you did that. It says, friendship with the world as it is now. Okay, let's read that together out loud. <clears throat> okay. Where are we at? I'm on page 94. Okay. You were supposed to write, as it is now under the curse. And same thing in the next blank, as it is now under the curse. What he's doing is helping you to think about the world now versus the world then. Okay? So let's just try it. And if you didn't write it in correctly, then you can just read it as I just told you, and we'll all think you did. All right? Friendship with the world, as it is now under the curse, is hatred toward God. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world as it is now under the curse. Romans 12, 2. Because it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So right now we're not supposed to rejoice and, uh, you know, love the world. The Bible says that if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. Because the world is not just the, not the globe, but that world system, that evil system, that 
uh, rebellion against God. But there's coming a new heaven and a new earth. Last page, 98. You were asked to look up some of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 3, 5, 5, 5, 10, 1 Peter 5, 5, and 6. According to the following scriptures, who will inherit or possess the kingdom? According to Matthew 5, 3, who's going to inherit it? Poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 5 says the meek. Matthew 5, 10 says the persecuted for righteousness sake. And 1 Peter 5, 5, and 6 says who will inherit it? The humble. How much is that opposite to today's world? Totally. We base things on people's power and might and position and name and who they are. And we see them rising as cream would rise to the top. And there they are, the rulers, the mighty men, the mighty women. But God doesn't look at things like we look at things. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Remember when uh, God sent um, Samuel, wasn't it Samuel, to anoint the next king? Remember, he rejected Saul. And so Jesse brings out his sons and his oldest son, Eliab. Eliab, isn't that right? Y'all don't know either. Anyway, uh, I think it's Eliab. E-L-I-A-B. Is that right? Okay, y'all look that up. Let me know next week. But they bring him out. And what does Samuel think in his mind? Surely the Lord's anointed. Because here he was. Jesse's oldest son. What did the Lord say? Mm, Not him. What the next one? No, not him. Not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. Is this all you got? Well, there's one left. He's out with the sheep. We're not going to sit down until you bring him in. And it was David. Man after God's own heart. Was David perfect? Far from it. But he had a heart for God. So we're reminded. Now, Saul, Saul was the original head and shoulders commercial spokesman. Remember, he was head and shoulders above the rest. And he was powerful and mighty and all these different things, but he became proud, didn't he? And he fell. And we find a very sad picture of a man who was just seeking to get relief from evil spirits that were tormenting him. We have to remember that um, God is going to give positions of leadership not based upon our pride and our power, but based upon our humility and our dependence upon him. That's why I said there's going to be a lot of surprises. I think the same is true when it comes to rewards day. You know, we think, well, you know, the great evangelists, the great preachers, the great saints, they're going to be the ones that are going to get the most crowns and most rewards. Not necessarily. Maybe some little grandmother nobody ever heard of who was on her face before God, crying out to God, living a life for God, crying out for all those great people that we know about. Just like when Jesus was watching him throw in the money, he saw that little widow come along and she threw in her two cents. What did he say? She's given more than all. all the rich. How can you say that, Jesus? I mean, she two cents. I mean, they gave you know, thousands of dollars. She gave it all. All she had. The great thing about this, beloved, there's so much we could say, and I apologize. Maybe we just start on day five next week and work our way back. Right. But we better pray, and um, i got to get out of here and get the choir director back over. But um, don't we serve a good God? What a great God we serve.
And I'm still going to say, even though we know so much more maybe now than we did when we first started, and maybe we know a lot less, too, because we didn't know we had too many questions to ask, I'll tell you what, no matter how much we can understand about it, it's going to be so much better than we can even think or imagine. And I can't wait. Father, thank you for the gift of yourself, the gift of your Son, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you're preparing a place for us even now. And you're coming to get us that we may, that we may be where you are. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that we get to rule and reign and we get to do all these wonderful things. And Lord, though we don't understand it all, we just rejoice in you and we know that you will work all things out to the good of your glory and our good as well. Dismiss us now as we go our separate ways. Help us as we study this week's lessons. And Lord, if you decide to come back before then, we're more than happy to lay our pens down and to close our books and to be with you. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day when our faith shall become sight. Bless these men and women. Bless their families. Lord, bless us as we go. May you be praised and honored in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen. God bless.